Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Food as Medicine series. Jamie Allers is back by popular demand. Uh, as listeners requested, today we will attempt a deeper dive into intermittent fasting. Jamie is a registered dietitian with Harford Healthcare's Digestive Health Center. Jamie, welcome back. Glad to be here. Great to be back. We discussed intermittent fasting briefly in our earlier episode on weight loss. Should we start by talking about the different types? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say the most common option is probably what we would call time-restricted eating. So you're going to have a period of fasting and then an interval of an eating window. A popular option is what they call the 16-8, where you're probably fasting for about 16 hours and you're eating over a period of eight hours. So, you know, in general, a lot of us actually naturally intermittent fast during our sleep and maybe it's more of an eight to 12 hour fast, depending on how much sleep you're able to get during the night. And then maybe we're eating over a 12 to 16 hour period, depending on your meals and whatnot. So this can really just be looked at as your baseline and then be extended or shortened depending on you individually or the plan that you're trying to develop. Another type of fasting is more separated by the types of days and your calories. So for instance, a popular one is called the 5-2, and that's a version where maybe five days of the week, you just eat your regular diet and your regular amount of calories. And then about two days of the week, you then decrease your calories pretty significantly. A lot of times it might be around like five to 800 calories, but typically definitely under a thousand. Huh. So I may have been accidentally intermittent fasting, I guess, during medicine residency when I didn't have time for breakfast and lunch. Absolutely. I haven't heard of the five, two version before. That's interesting also, because I remember my grandmother would always fast one or two days a week for religious reasons. So Mm -hmm. maybe she was intermittent fasting back then too. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. So either way, one does intermittent fasting, you're restricting the timing of meals. Uh, Is there one method you recommend more than the others? Yeah, not really necessarily. I mean, it all really depends on the individual's goals, what they're trying to get out of making these changes, their schedule, how their lifestyle works. So for some people, if you do have that goal of weight loss, if you're just able to stop eating after a certain time at night, when you're beginning your fast, this could help you to be more mindful of snacking after dinner. And in that way, it's really less about what it is that you chose to do or the schedule that you adopted for fasting. And it's more about those behaviors that are changing. So it's, you know, it really depends on the individual in that way. And again, someone's work schedule, what they like to do with their family and the obligations they have in that regard, and even their social life, it can all play a role into what type of fasting would be the most beneficial. And again, there are some individuals that maybe are not the best fit for a fasting plan when you're trying to develop something, especially those with certain chronic issues, or if you have a history of certain um, different comorbidities or medications or even a certain age group. Yeah. I remember you said last time that any weight loss strategy has to be one that's willing, that fits into one's lifestyle. You know, otherwise 
you can't sustain it. Um, so say you and your patient believe intermittent fasting is the optimal weight loss strategy for their lifestyle. Uh, how do you start? So with any situation where we're trying to make lifestyle changes, I always like to get a really good idea about what that person is currently doing with their food, you know, what they like to eat, how often they might eat, where they eat their meals, when they're eating their meals, any like food allergies or food preferences, of course, their social life their home environment, their work environment, and their schedule. And after we review those types of factors, you might find that just like you mentioned with, you know, med school or for religious reasons, sometimes patients are already fasting, then and they're closer to that protocol than they actually thought. And maybe changing to adopt that lifestyle really isn't much of a change at all. And so it may not necessarily be something that benefits them. So you want to start at least with seeing how different this plan would be from your you know, traditional lifestyle that you're already living. And then if there is something that might benefit a patient that might be more beneficial in their situation instead of in intermittent fasting like something more simpler, like reducing sweetened beverages or sodas or something like that. You know, we might just start there before we even get into intermittent fasting. And I usually advertise intermittent fasting as almost a tool to see if we can implement it later on to see if we can get additional benefit from it. But after we go through that conversation, we really make the decision it is the best fit, then depending, you know, on if there's other medical indications why they shouldn't be intermittent fasting, we would want to look at our options and see what would be the best match for that person's current lifestyle and what would be sustainable for that person. So someone might come into me wanting to do a 24 hour fast, and maybe that is the most obvious significant change for them, but maybe that's not necessarily what they're ready for when you get to learn what it actually entails. And so we might back off a little bit and start with something a little less um, extreme in a way or more sustainable, like something like the 16 hour, eight hour fast protocol to start there. And what is a typical follow-up with intermittent fasting? Uh, are there any benchmarks other than weight? Mm -hmm. With Well, especially if it's a significant change for an individual, you want to at least give it a month or if not, check in frequently if you need to based off of how that person is feeling with it. And with any type of change, if something does not feel right, if you're getting symptoms that are uncomfortable or you really just don't like doing it, we can stop the fast and just reassess at a later date. So you want to be watching out and following up on symptoms like lightheadedness, dizziness, muscle cramps, check in with that person, just make sure that they're hydrating adequately. And if there's a need for electrolytes, possibly sometimes that can be helpful. We see constipation with fasting sometimes as well as we do with different dietary changes. And so you want to be monitoring that and treating based off of what you feel would be the best way to help treat that type of change. So whether that's getting the person more fiber, or maybe it is also tied into their hydration. So also, you know, that example of that five, two fast, it really has to do with that calories restriction, but time-based fasting. So like the 16, eight that we referenced, it doesn't always have to be about reducing calories within your eating window. So depending on that individual's plan, you want to be following up on if they're eating enough within their eating window, or if they're eating the right things, or they're getting enough nutrition in general, because it's easy to kind of use intermittent fasting as a way to eat less. And if it's not done properly, you might see 
some longer term issues with that. Um, also exercise with fasting can be part of what you want to be monitoring as well. Seeing if the person still has exercise, um, energy to get through their workout and whatnot while they start the intermittent fasting plan. You can also follow up on any improvements in their hunger and their appetite being more controlled because of the improvement in blood glucose regulation and insulin sensitivity we tend to see with fasting. And then there's other benefits that can come from that, whether you're having improved energy, your sleep gets better. Um, also, sometimes fasting can give the digestive system a little bit of a break and find you might have less um, symptoms in terms of gas and bloating. Yeah, there are definitely certain GI conditions I can think of off the top of my head where timed eating or changing the eating intervals or windows, as you call them, can reduce symptoms. Um, how long do you typically have your patients do uh, IF for? Do you transition to something else? Yeah, so it's a great question. So again, we kind of go back to the sustainability factor of this, depending on the person's goals, what outcomes they're looking for, the length of time you do fasting can vary. So if the weight is the main goal that you're trying to address here and the person is able to do it and they're feeling good and no complaints, you can generally continue it for a while and just kind of make sure nutritionally that they're choosing the right foods and everything seems balanced enough within the foods that they are choosing. And at the same time, we can stop if you're not necessarily seeing results anymore. You can revisit the fasting again in a few months and see if it helps a couple months down the line. If you're looking for other types of improvements, like better control of insulin or maybe improving your sleep, there might be a way to do intermittent fasting in a more sustainable way that you could adopt for your lifestyle. But again, you just want to make sure that when you are eating, you've got the nutrients you need, you're staying hydrated, you're not necessarily inadequate in certain things that for the long term would cause any other issues. So you just want to keep that in mind as well. And, and then what are typical setbacks you see in patients with intermittent fasting? Uh, and are there any troubleshooting tips you offer? Part of it has to do with the sustainability of it. So if your family or your social eating situation can make it difficult to be consistent, that cause that's one troubleshooting area. Um, you know, if weekends are more difficult for you because you go out to eat more, or you see other people at different times, you can maybe try fasting during the week and taking that break on the weekends to be more compliant. Also like really working from your schedule. So if you, in your mind, want to stop fasting at six o'clock, or start your fast at 6 p.m., but your family always eats dinner at 8 o'clock, you know, is it reasonable to kind of adjust that goal for yourself and say, all right, my fast will begin after I finish dinner with my family and kind of work backwards from that? Also, if you're complaining of hunger when you started the fast, maybe it's difficult for you to be compliant with it. So starting with a more liberal fast could be helpful. Um, also you want to make sure you're not over restricting on fasting days. And then on your non-fasting days, really taking it to the other extreme. <laughs> so that could be counterproductive. So that also comes up a lot as well. Um, and a common one really is that morning time. Like, what do I do to hold my hunger over before I actually get to break my fast? Oftentimes people go for coffee. I mean, that's traditionally what we drink in the morning anyways. So you want to watch out what you're adding to your coffee, whether that's added sugars, sweeteners, um, different items like dairy products or sweetened creamers can technically almost 
through in your fast and the effort of what you're trying to do there. So you want to watch out for drinks in the morning before you break your fast. And, you know, again, there's flexibility here with that and trying to monitor how you're feeling depending on what you're doing in that morning time. So uh, keeping aware of that and um, following up on it really is the name of the game there. Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't you know, if, it, if somebody had to take my coffee in the morning, that'd be problematic for me. Um, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> other than weight loss, what other diseases do you consider intermittent fasting to be a treatment option? Yeah. So I mentioned before we see improvement in blood glucose and also insulin sensitivity with intermittent fasting. So those who you see insulin resistance with or pre-diabetes and even with full diagnosed diabetes, you might see some improvement in these blood level markers. Of course, with diabetes or maybe if there's any medications involved in a pre-diabetic state, you want to review those medications, especially those that are hypoglycemic to make sure that the fasting isn't um, promoting that happening more often. Also, that improvement in insulin regulation is also tied to decreasing that visceral or abdominal fat that we're always looking to help improve for um, reducing chronic health risk. And research has shown some possible improvement in your blood lipid panel inflammation overall. There's even some interesting research out there about like slowing and decreasing the aging process and prolonging your lifespan. But again, some of these aren't really done in humans at this point, more in rodents. And so more research is needed in that area for sure. Well, I mean, even if it's just mouse studies, it's remarkable, you know, to see dietary changes, alter inflammation, aging and animal lifespan. I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, every intervention could have unintended consequences. Uh, what are the risks of intermittent fasting? I, I know mm -hmm. you mentioned hypoglycemia, I think, earlier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And right. So hypoglycemia is one of them. Also, sometimes if you've had a history of gout or you're currently experiencing gout, you might be at a greater risk for some type of flare or symptoms with that as well. Um, and then of course, there's anyone who you're trying to avoid impeding any type of development or your nutritional statuses, like during pregnancy, during lactation, if you have a history of an eating disorder, if you're actively growing in your childhood or even um, in the elderly population, it could cause additional risk for kind of compromising growth and nutritional status. So you'd want to watch out for that. Yeah. I mean, I think this just underscores the importance that, you know, the dietitian and the medical provider work in collaboration. Um, cause I wouldn't have thought of gout for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, while some diets like the Mediterranean diet uh, have been recognized by societies, AHA, do any national societies recognize or recommend intermittent fasting? You can definitely find research out there now, like we mentioned before, with the rodent studies and whatnot. And there's a lot of information in different medical journals and reviews. But in terms of like looking at societies and their statements or position statements on this protocol, basically the message is we still need more research. And so you'll be able to find, you know, websites and articles like through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics or Harvard School of Public Health. Um, but the end line is always, well, you know, we see this, it might be promising in this way. Here's potentially how to do it, but we definitely need to have more solid research to really understand the risks and the benefits and how to do it to the most effective way. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I get, I think there's more to come, right? I think with yeah. a lot of the stuff, mm-hmm. there's more to come and it's, it's an exciting time uh, because I do believe the next five, 10 years, we will really have these tools, these dietary tools at our, at our disposal. Um, thank you so much, Jamie. I really appreciate all your time. Um, I think a point I always want to stress when we do these dietary podcasts is that it's critical that if you're looking to implement any of these diets, you know, work with a registered dietitian. And if you have one that's particularly training gut disorders, even better, you know, lucky for us, we have specialized GI dietitians here at Connected GI and the Digest Health Center. So Jamie, thank you again for your time. I look forward to doing this again uh, to our listeners until next time. This is Neil Parikh signing off. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. For additional information about today's topic, please visit ConnecticutGI.org. Your feedback is important to us, so please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Gut Doctor, and if you think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, just trust your gut.